0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: tuned to WFMU Morcone Island. I'm your host, Devin Evans, here every Tuesday from 8 to 9 p.m. Playing the soundtrack hits this week is no exception. We have joining us Robert Aiki abrey lowe We'll be discussing his latest score for Grasshopper Republic, which will be screening here in New York on November 15th at Angelica Theatres, 6.30pm, that's a Wednesday, as part of the Docs NYC premiere there. I think there's additional screenings, but the first one will have a Q&A with the filmmakers and some special guests. And it's a documentary that was directed by Daniel McCabe, relies on field recordings and natural audio from the remote forests and villages of young men in the forests of Uganda who go to try to trap millions of grasshoppers, which... Uh, they harvest for the prize delicacy among the city dwellers there. Robert Aiki Abrilo, welcome to the
0: show. Yeah, thanks for having
1: me. Projects you're involved with kind of came on my radar in the late 90s with 90 Day Men. Mm. With that split record with uh, Go 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 Earhart.
0: Yeah. They, yeah, we were all really close friends and we would try to play shows together as much as possible and came up in that split series, asked us to do one together we were like yeah that's made sense. a no-brainer that's so easy
1: so you got your start more, more or less singing for this band right like 90 day men and playing bass and even trumpet before
0: yeah there was a little bit of trumpet playing and and yeah i played bass and sang in 90 day men primarily a little bit of synthesizer but it was mainly electric bass and singing right voice. and you
1: guys were based mo- mostly known out of chicago even though kind of originated from st louis right
0: Well, all the other members are from St. Louis and they started the group when Chandler McWilliams and Casey Key were on break from university in Chicago and come back for the summer and started the group with Brian Case, who was about to move up to Chicago to go to school. And then I started playing with them just under a year later, just just about a year after it started. Then uh, eventually Chandler left the group. And we were a trio for a while, and then uh, Andy Lansangan, who is also from St. Louis, they all like some of those guys went to high school together. Ended up moving to Chicago and started playing with us, and then we were a quartet. Yeah, team. and
1: so are you from Chicago originally, or
0: no? I'm also from Missouri. I'm from Kansas City. Missouri. Oh, you are. Yeah, I see. So I'm from the the other the other city, big city, in that. But you state. found
1: each other there, basically.
0: Yeah, I mean, we knew each other from. St. Louis and Kansas City because, you know, we were just playing shows like house shows or punk shows in different cities in the region. You know, you start to meet people, play shows with people and other bands. And so that's how we all met and kept in contact. And then once they all moved to Chicago, I started playing with them while I was living in Kansas City and ended up moving to Chicago just because it made more sense for me to be there instead of. And also I was, it was at a point in my life that I was ready to leave Kansas City. I felt like there was a, a cultural low that was happening at the time. Like there was, you know, and it, it's funny because Kansas City is a place that uh, most people don't regard, I think, a lot of the time due to the fact that Kansas isn't the title of the, the town. But, you know, it's, you know, it's a greater Kansas City area. is a million people. Oh, yeah. it's, it's a city. And it is really a cultural hub. In the Midwest, like there's a lot culturally that's come out of Kansas City. And even when I was there, you know, growing up, there was so much. And, you know, that's not even talking like about- you're
1: saying like jazz, <laughs> Charlie Parker. And yeah, like- I mean,
0: jazz is a huge thing. Charlie Parker and Count Basie were both from Kansas City, you know, Birdland. The first iteration of Birdland was on 18th and Vine, you know, just. Culturally, there was so much going on there, like uh, had a really prestigious Art Institute, one of the more prestigious ones I feel like in the country, KCAI, the museums and galleries there were always really great. And then the, the music scene was also weird and had a larger part in the alternative music landscape in the 90s as well. So I think there was a lot going on there, but it was at a point where there was a sort of a lull and I found it was the, the opportune time for me to leave and, and move to somewhere else, which was Chicago. But so the, yeah. that
1: band was together for almost 10 years, right? And then at some point, you yeah. made a, was it a conscious effort to just do a solo project? Or like, what drew you to monophonic sense and yeah. like kind of doing your yeah. own thing?
0: I mean, it was a conscious shift for me. I wanted to be able to explore certain things that I felt were best done on my own, which essentially was exploring the human voice as an instrument and I like the idea of spontaneous music um, and ecstatic music and I felt that I could set up a a way myself for me to get there and explore the and I think I was doing some of that stuff in 90 Day Men I was uh, back then and even earlier I was a really big fan of Yoko Ono and at that time it was sort of Yoko was sort of polarizing. I felt that, you know, there were not a lot of people in my sphere that appreciated the work that she had done. And for me, you know, her work musically, but also her work as a Fluxus artist. And I was, I was very influenced in the way in which she used her voice and her body and, and, and found ways to explore gesture and the body Mm. in terms of the human voice as an instrument and so that's sort of where that came from and then finding other instrumentation that would couple with the voice you know early on i was using a uh, acoustic steel string guitar for a lot of the stuff that i was doing some percussive stuff and then i ended up landing on modular synthesizers because it was a real it was a real foil to the human voice and i found that a modular synthesizer could also act as a collaborator for me in that space, as well as being an extension of my own body. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of over time, that's sort of how that developed. And that
1: that sort of occurred around that same time, 2004, five, six.
0: Yeah. 2004 and five is when I started exploring solo work and improvisation and spontaneous music. And probably around 2008, is when I started to is when I started to shift from acoustic instrumentation to electronic instruments, like more heavily and then find, found a complete focus with modular synthesizers around that time, probably around two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Were
1: you originally attracted to vintage equipment or was it the newer
0: Oh yeah. I mean I, I've always been a fan of synthesizers. That like I, I think they're lovely objects. I think they're fascinating in a lot of ways and so yeah vintage vintage instruments initially but then I found a real love for the cross-pollination of ideas that you found with more contemporary instruments that were pieces of hardware that one person would design and then you could intermingle that and, and create a dialogue between two different completely different concepts right um which I thought was really exciting and so yeah I really wanted to push the boat out in that Where way. did
1: you, like with your modular synth setup, where did you start? Like what did where did you land on when you really felt like uh, this is your sound or...
0: Well, well, honestly, it. it I started by, because it was, I couldn't really afford to buy a whole system. So it started with um, different pedals, mm. like essentially guitar pedals or effect pedals. And I would sort of arrange them in different ways and I had a way to process them, and then also modulate them. And so it was sort of a big clunky setup that became more refined as I started to build a, a Eurorack modular synthesizer. And it started out with make noise modules. I think the first module I had was the Maths, which is a, a sort of a, an expanded function generator, uh, which could produce sound on its own, but also is an excellent modulation source, a utility source. And so it was, it was about finding how to use and understand the function of each module one at a time. So I would get one, I would figure out how it worked play around with it, figure out how it factored into my practice. Then I would get another one and I would cross-pollinate the two of those, figure those out, and then I would get another one. So I think the last oscillator I got before I started doing live performances with the modular synthesizer was an oscillator. I got the, the oscillator was the last thing that I got because I was able to sort of produce sound and process sound by making adjustments to these function generators. So they would actually produce a sound and then start playing with that. So I probably had five modules when I first started doing live performances. And for me, it was about, jumping into the lion's mouth to see what happened because I really liked the idea of the challenge and being able to explore in real time and, and improvise and understand what was happening in space in real time and sort of weave myself in and out of that. And I always had, you know, I always had my voice to fall back on. So no matter what was happening with the, this extension, which was the the synthesizer, I was always finding places with my voice to move around with it so that's that's sort of how that started so and i think if i remember correctly the group matmos Drew daniel and martin schmidt were doing a performance in manhattan and had asked me to to do a performance with them like as support mm-hmm. for matmos i think that's the first time i used the modular synthesizer live where was that is it at a place called Le poisson rouge all right
1: it, what point, like what, what sort of drove you into the world of scoring for film? A few, a few think, years later, it looks like.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, honestly, the first film that I scored was a film called Last Kind Words by Kevin Barker, which is sort of a gothic ghost story that takes place in Kentucky, starring Brad DeRiff, which was very exciting for me because I love Brad DeRiff. That was 2010, I believe. So before that, some of my work that was available, some of my recordings that were out in the world already had been licensed for short films. The first one was a small, it was a short film by a filmmaker that was a part of the AFI program, Mm -hmm. uh, the American Film Institute program, had made a short film, had heard my work, really liked it, and asked me if he could license it. So that was the first time. And then there were a couple other short films that had licensed pieces of mine. Because I do think that the work that I was making back then definitely could lend itself to cinema. And I think a lot of that also had to do with the fact that I was such a fan of cinema from such a young age and was very invested in cinema and discovering films and just being excited about films. And I think the films that I was excited about were a little left of center, things that were more underground, not not as as readily available and i think that the, there was the magic of discovery as far as that was concerned as well whether it was you know at the time like the uh, the french new wave or Czech anime like mid-century Czech animation mm-hmm. or you know and it sort of went on and on and i would dive as deeply as i could eventually getting a copy of amos vogel's film is a subversive art that was like the the bible for me you know being able to explore and that was that at that point that that book was published in 73 or 74 but it only went up to 1972 but it was cinema globally and like different aspects of cinema and so i would just go through and try to find films that i was reading about in in vogel's book which you know that was incredibly beneficial for my education in cinema, aside from the things that I had already discovered up to that point. And that would have been probably around the time that I was 21 years old, maybe.
1: Were your solo performances kind of uh, bringing in visuals as well when you were performing live?
0: At the time, no. It was very important for me... That the intention of the work, the aural work in the space be the focus. And and I also was very tentative about visuals with performances because I had seen so many where the visuals were just... They had no relationship to what was the aural information that was happening any sort of sonic information it was so often there would be a real disconnect for me when i would see visuals that had no relationship um, especially when people were doing like found found footage or things like that and it was an aesthetic that had the potential to be something very strong but it was just very superficial it was very surface now if you keep in mind something like the Joshua white liquid light performances, like stuff like that. I think, yeah, sure. It could work very well, but also I think it has a very specific connotation that is attached to that and a very specific place and time that's attached to that. But yeah. So early on, it was very much about being physically in the space and experiencing the thing and the, any sort of visual aspect was, literally just myself sitting in a chair and I would use textiles or fabrics around me. And that would sort of set the stage. It was almost ritualistic in this way with which I would, it was important for me to be able to transform the space or to create a space within a space. And I wanted to do that without any sort of um, moving images attached to it for the time. But eventually, I started doing more audiovisual performances, but things that I would personally make, video work, or film work that I would make.
1: Well, it looks like like in the the around the 2000, I don't know 13, 14, 15, you got involved with Johan Johansson and and Hildur. Like, you, you, there's that Into Summer release, uh-huh. the short film. I guess he
0: directed that, right? And then Johan, yeah, Johan made the made film. the
1: film, and you all contributed. Instrumentation. Yeah, we, I mean, we, as a, no, as a, no, as a trio,
0: we wrote, we wrote the, the together. Yeah. Like that's, like, we all, we, all the three of us wrote the, that work.
1: How'd that come about? How did you all meet?
0: Johan and I had been friends for a, a bit of time. I think we first met in 2008. I was asked to do a couple performances with him, and I think those were his first performances in the US. He'd done a small tour, and I had been asked to do a performance with him in Philadelphia and one in Chicago. So we did those performances together and then we just ended up staying in contact. We found that we had a real mutual appreciation for each other's work and talked about, from that point on, sort of talked about the what the potential of some sort of a collaboration would look like. So jump forward to, I think it was, I can't remember when the film... Prisoners came out. But Johan had been doing a bit of film scoring, and he had just started talking with Denis Villeneuve about this film Prisoners. So this would have been 2012. The film came out in 2013. And I think Johan's initial idea for making the score was to collaborate with myself and Stephen O'Malley, and the three of us would go to Iceland and make the score for this film. And ultimately, Johan ended up doing that score on his own and going a, a different direction. I think a lot of it had to do with scheduling between the three of us. But directly after that, he had gone to Antarctica and shot this 16 millimeter footage and was putting, had put together this short film, End of Summer, and had asked me if I would, would collaborate with him and Hilda to, to do the score. So I went to Berlin spent a few days with him and uh francesco donadello a recording engineer in his, his studio voxton and worked on that and then before i left berlin he had mentioned to me that he had been working on another f- film and this was another film for denis called sicario and he asked me if i could potentially help with that and so all of the vocal all the voice work in sicario is stuff that i i did
1: and you were part of, you were part of the one after that, too? Was that a ri- Arrival? Arrival
0: was a bit more involved on my part. Johann again, had started working on Arrival. And this was very early in the process. Denis, I think, was still location scouting at the time that Johann asked me to come to Berlin and start to work on demos with him. So we were talking about these concepts of making a studer two-inch tape machine into a giant tape echo which Francesco had sort of figured out, turning off all the erase heads and then opening up the playback and then making a very long band of two-inch tape loop, mm-hmm. which stretched across the, the control room and was had a, a microphone stand as a tension for the tape loop. And so I did the series of recordings of my voice, so I, I figured out I wanted to do these progressions with the voice and this arc. And we had talked a lot about, Johan and I had talked a lot about putting any sort of a, like removing any sort of a cultural reference due to the fact that it was a science fiction film and it was it was concentrated on the, the sound of aliens or an alien sound. And so I figured out this progression and this way of moving with my voice. And I created these, the series of loops that we recorded and then dumped down to Pro Tools erase the tape I did it again dumped it down erased the tape and then so we had all the source material to work with and then Johan also was doing the same thing with the piano Yeah, there was a grand piano that he was playing these large chords and the recordings were happening in the same way on the tape loop and then what they would do is dump all the recordings down to Pro Tools and then remove the attack so it was just this really large swell. And so between the, the swells of the piano and the the way in which I was sort of arcing my voice and we had these two elements that were being used as the source material for this main, sort of main theme of the film. And those recordings... Um, which were initially meant to be demos, ended up being the actual recordings that were used in the, the final film.
1: Were those your last recordings with him? Did you do, do anything else? Any other collaborations no. after that? then?
0: That- then after Arrival, we were meant to work together on Darren Aronofsky's film Mother, which ended up, there was ultimately no score for that film. And then I was working with Johan on a Another film that didn't happen, but then uh, the final film that we worked on together was Last and First Men, which was his second film, right? which is a really lovely film of these uh, sort of Tito-era sculptures in the former Yugoslavia. And so, yeah, that that was the last film that we worked on together. And around that time, I was starting to work on another film that I was, I was scoring, called Il Copo del Cane, which is an Italian film made by uh, Fulvio Risolio. It's sort of a comedic film, sort of a dark comedy, in a really interesting space for me to exist in, uh, due to the the nature of the work that I make. But Fulvio had approached me because he really liked my work, and so it was really interesting to, to approach this film that had a real comedic bent to it and sort of have the ability with the sound to make it even weirder than it yeah. already was. So that was really nice. And also when I was, I was in Rome working on the score for that film, I received an email and this was February of 2019. I received an email from monkey paw productions uh, asking me about my potential interest in availability and availability in. Scoring a, a horror film. With
1: How they find you? Do you, do you know what, what uh, attracted your music to their project?
0: I mean, all I know is that Jordan Peele and Ian Cooper, who's the artistic director at Monkey Paw, like one of the one of the executives at Monkey Paw, had been fans of my work for some time, and I guess my name had been bandied about a couple times on other projects, and they reached out. And it's funny because they reached out not knowing my relationship to Chicago and not knowing that I when I first moved to Chicago, I lived probably close to four to six blocks away from Cabrini right. Green. <laughs> yeah, really close. But uh, no, that they were just compelled to ask me because they thought it would be an interesting proposal for the film. And I, I agree with them. I think it was pretty interesting. And we're
1: speaking of the Candyman. The, I guess it would be Candy the sequel, Man, yeah. maybe the fourth. I guess maybe uh, the fourth in the series. Yeah,
0: I mean it's it fourth in the series, but it's meant to be. It takes place within the the universe of the original film, and I guess it sort of discounts the second and third film and is focused really on the, you know. 3 decades down the line after the original film was made by Bernard Rose.
1: And some of the original people come back, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, Tony Todd, Virginia Madsen, yeah.
1: How how daunting was that? I mean, all of a sudden you're doing like kind of a a big high-profile film with the I guess the original music for the the first one is Philip Glass, the first two, I think, right? Uh, how yeah. like um I know at the end, like during the the, the last sequence, which I love, Kind of reminds me of mm-hmm. Lottie Reiniger's The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, the way the, the stop animation animation Oh um, wow if you've ever, awesome. you ever seen yeah, that, yeah. which is an all time favorite of mine. But you I think that may be the only time that you bring back that music box theme, or maybe it does creep in before, yeah, but so like the... it's very prominent there. Did you want to? Did you feel compelled to bring that in? How'd you deal with the beast of Philip Glass, I guess, looming over your
0: head? So it was daunting only in the way that it was sort of a high profile project and I had never dealt with a major studio before. So that was a little bizarre for me. I work generally on a much smaller level, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist that's established myself in the way that I do things for many years and it only makes sense for me to work the way that I work to maintain the integrity of the work that I do. And so I went into the project with a clear proposal of how I wanted to approach the film with clear intentions of the things that I wanted to make, how I wanted to make them, which were very unconventional. And I said that up front, I'm a very unconventional composer. I do things in a very strange way. Nothing is traditional and you need to know that because that's how I'm going to do it. And that's what's going to make the most sense. And I'm going to make sure that it makes the most sense within this landscape because ultimately it's a part of the work that I do is the the part the work that I do is meant to enhance the vision of the filmmaker. Mm. And so it was about having communication, like having deep dialogues and a back and forth where we could. Create a vocabulary of our own, myself and Nia DeCosta, the director, but also having conversations with with Ian and Jordan, and having this understanding of like, okay, I'm going to present this work, and I'm doing so in this way with this very clear intention, and I will explain to you why I'm doing things the way that I'm doing them because this is how I see my way through it, and I think that's very important to be it's it's the most important thing for me within the the scope of a collaboration like that is to make sure that the communication is very strong and there's an open dialogue and for me it's always important to come onto the project as early as i possibly can because that means that i have the ability to give the most complex most advanced version of the thing that i need to make in that space period going into it there were conversations initially about the original score because at the time it seemed quite different that someone like philip glass would do a score for a horror movie or at least that was sort of the the way it was perceived it seems to have been perceived in that way it was important for me and i said this many times i said it's it's really important for me to make sure that people understand that this film even though it is a spiritual sequel to the original film is its own film. It takes place within the universe of the original film, but it needs to stand on its own as a, as a, an independent work. And that being said, not only the film itself has to be that, but every aspect of that film. So the score as well. So there were talks about the potential of, utilizing some aspects of the original score, which I sort of pushed off to the side. And it was most important for me to be able to create the world, like build the world, create the sound palette, understand the instrumentation that I wanted to be using in that space and not have it be beholden to the original score, which I think is an amazing work. I'm a huge fan of Philip Glass and I, I have been since I was discovered his work as a teenager Mm -hmm. like love it It's, it's bananas good but i felt that it would be reductive to give too much and it was about understanding how to make references to those things without things being derivative and so i built this whole body of work this complete score and then for a very specific scene which was ultimately a flashback scene in which early on in the film, which you see the, the shadow puppet animation. I then started to explore the music box theme. And then due to the fact that I had already created the world of sound that the score was living in and the character that was then imparted to the film itself, mm-hmm. then I was able to explore that composition and make it my own and make it Makes sense within the context of the larger score that I. so at the made.
1: very end you you bring it back in kind of like full force but it still has the all these elements of like what you've been creating leading up to that point mm-hmm. i mean one thing notable and i don't know how important this is for all of your films but you had actually went to cabrini greens and did field recordings right was that during the filming of true, filming yeah. of this or this on your own or, uh-huh. or separately yeah
0: no, it was, it was, it was during the, the shoot. It was important for me, and I had also expressed this to them early on, even before I had been selected to, to make the score for the film. I said it was, would be important for me to be on location because for a number of reasons. One, to do field recordings, which was the most important reason, because I wanted to take the psychic energy of the space, the actual space, which ultimately ended up being the core theme of the film was not the theme of a, a person or one of the, the humans in the, in the film. It was the location. The theme was more tethered to the location of Cabrini Green. So I wanted to be able to do field recordings in and around the row houses because the, the high rises, the, the towers don't exist anymore, they were torn down. To sort of capture that psychic energy And in part, that is textural elements inside of the the score itself. So that energy and that physicality of that three-dimensional space was actually then injected into the score and carries that energy throughout. So yes, that was an important thing for
1: me. Is there a specific track you can recall that most exemplifies
0: that? There are a few. I would say I also did recordings of some of the actors' voices and... Also, once again, while I was on location and another reason for being on location was actually to be able to watch Nia work as a director and how she worked in that space and how she worked with the actors in the space. And it was important for me to understand her practice as an artist as well. But I did some recordings of of some of the main characters of the film, and I wanted to I prompted them with very specific words or phrases related to the film, one being the incantation of Candyman, and took and granularly stretched and mangled those voices to the point that they were no longer recognizable as human voices or language, and also injected that into the space and that, that idea of having the incantation of, of Candyman in these compositions, where you don't actually hear it or understand it as being that, but the energy of that thing is in that space. So I think Rosen Towers is a good example of that. That particular composition, the End of Finley is a, also a good example of that. Right, um, sample of that. Yeah,
1: I know. There's a lot in between, like even before Candyman, and then in, in between your most recent uh, releases, which I. Want to make sure we give them yeah, yeah, yeah. some due justice because that's what we're <laughs> that's what we're here about. But I did like like last summer. I did see Telemarketers, you know, on HBO. That was like a, a three part docu series, I recall. Yeah. And then more recently, just coming out now, I haven't actually seen it. I've I've seen some clips and I've I've seen the trailer and all that for uh, Grasshopper Republic. Both of these available uh-huh. through Invada,
0: right? Uh, Invada Records. yeah. Yeah.
1: And you've had a premiere for Grasshopper Republic, like the world premiere. But coming up here in New York for uh, Docs NYC, I guess November fifteenth, you have the the first New York screening, if not U.S. screening. You yeah. You can tell me otherwise. And that that's it.
0: It's it would be the oh yeah
1: Angelica, right? Go ahead. Angelica six thirty yeah, p.m. Angelica
0: Theater six thirty p.m. Angelica Theater, yeah, uh, Village East. And there will be a, an in-person...
1: Additional screenings after, yeah. Yeah. But will you be there for the Q&A or...?
0: I will be there for the Q&A, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, we're definitely doing the Q&A for the Angelica screening, which is the first one. And then it will screen at IFC the next day, but there won't be a QA. and a So if, if you have the opportunity come to the Angelica. But in general, if you have the opportunity to see the film in the cinema, I highly recommend it's it. It's the
1: best way, yeah.
0: always. <laughs> but I, you can
1: probably describe this better than I, but my understanding is that it's a documentary filmed in Uganda, in the forest of Uganda, and it's a number of people that are basically trapping grasshoppers that are a delicacy, it sounds like. And it's... yeah, Sounds like it's more a medit- meditative type documentary where you're seeing... The, the, the workings of these people, the beginnings, I guess, the births of some of these grasshoppers and less dialogue and more visual with your music as a counterpart to yeah. all of that. I can only assume based on the Candyman discussion that you had some field recordings going with that project as well. well. <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll tell you what, that, that's a pretty accurate description. So basically Grasshopper Republic is a documentary about grasshopper trapping in Uganda But the thing about Grasshopper Republic is it doesn't necessarily read as a documentary. And that's the thing that I really love about it. It's meant to be experiential. It's meant to be immersive. And there's nothing explained. Right. There's no exposition. There's no narration or voiceover. There's no interviews. No. And the, the humans within the landscape of the film are not only not interacting with the camera, they don't acknowledge the camera ever in the film and I think in a way I, the way I came into working on this film was Daniel McCabe the director reached out to me through social media actually and said hey I am a fan of your work I had recently seen you do this performance a few months ago and I have this film that I'm working on and I was wondering if you might potentially be interested in in doing a score and so he sent me also a three minute sizzle which I responded to him immediately and said, thank you for sending this. And I was in the middle of some other work. And I said, when I get a moment to actually have the brain space to take a look at this, I will. And so a few days later, I took a look at this three minutes of footage that was shot in Uganda and it blew my mind. It was so incredibly expansive, this three minutes of footage. It was, it was, I was longing to see more of it and immediately thought oh yeah this is something that i would love to be involved with but you know that it's an interesting situation because it is a white american filmmaker that's making this film about this part of ugandan culture but the thing that i love about the film is the way in which it's made the way in which it's cut together you know it's a film that took it was three years in the making mm. it took them three years to make this film and get the footage so it's 280 plus hours of footage that uh, the editor, Elise Artel Spiegel, had to sift through to get to it. Because the first year they went during grasshopper season, the swarm season, they didn't get the swarm. They went back a second year during swarm season, they didn't get the swarm. They went back the third year and they got it. And it, I mean, the swarm, this grasshopper swarm happens on a biblical level. It's bananas. It just fills up the sky
1: it's difficult to to find i guess you're saying like it's difficult to actually capture it
0: well i think there are specific locations in the forests and around lake systems in uganda where the swarms generally tend to happen but it's about timing it's about finding the right time being able to build the trap which is a real ordeal like it it's a long process because you know these these traps for the grasshoppers are you know End up being the size of like a small village. Oh, Jesus! Like yeah, it's it's a lot of people working in this space, collecting all these grasshoppers, and then they bag up burlap sacks like millions of these grasshoppers. Throw them on top of vans, drive into Kampala, the main city, and by dawn they're at market at the market selling them. So it's the the process is really wild, and it happens in a in a very short period of time. But then, of course, the lead up to that. Is an extended period, but the way in which the film works, it's uh, there's something about it that, at one moment, sort of leans away from the concept of a documentary because you're just an observer in this landscape, and in a way, it, it, it there's something that reminds me of uh, the movement of people working that series, that film series that Phil Niblock had been working on for years. But it lends itself to slow cinema, so something by Ben Rivers or Ben Russell or Steve McQueen or Pitchapong, Vrasatakul, or even like Chantal Ackerman, the depth and the stillness of the way in which the film moves until it doesn't. And then it becomes this sort of ecstatic experience. But it's it's something that's really lovely. And like the dialogue that happens, it's very, like not mundane, but it's, it truly is like very, casual very natural all the dialogue that's happening you're watching this fellow mcgazy jury rig this generator so it runs at 400 watts instead of 220 volts you know like all this crazy shit that's happening the way that they put together the light sources that they use at night to attract the grasshoppers into the traps by taking these giant light bulbs breaking off cracking off the bulb and then just extracting the filament and using this chemical to excite the filament so it glows brighter and those those bulbs around them are basically UVB filters and insects are can see UVB on the spectrum and are attracted to that light but it's also something that can burn a human's eye so it's it's about like all of these steps that are taken and and the ways in which the traps have been crafted over years and so you're watching you're watching this process but also you're seeing it from the vantage point of the insect world mm-hmm. as well so it's it's about this sort of push and pull between the human world and the insect world and for me it was really interesting to explore a concept of almost science fiction which is something that Dan and I had been discussing quite a lot as I was coming to to make the score and finding themes or sonic articulations that would lend themselves to the insect world and then also different articulations that were maybe more tonal in scope for the human world and then having the cross pollination of those two things so if it was more tonal in the human world maybe it was more textural or potentially percussive in the insect world and like having those things intermingle and finding elementally finding those things in the other world as well so it was about sort of moving through the landscape and finding how to represent the spaces explored in the film in this sonic or aural function.
1: You have a long period of time to work on that? Like were you within all these different attempts for them to film it or did you come in more towards the end?
0: I came in after everything had been filmed. The first footage I saw that was cut together was, I saw a five-hour cut. That was the first thing they sent to me. So they were still really working through a lot of footage. But Soup to Nuts, I probably spent four. No, I probably spent six months altogether.
1: Were you we able to get grass grasshopper sound? Do they make noise?
0: They do. And it was actually interesting for me to steer clear of the actual diegetic sound and let the diegetic sound exist in the space as it was. And then find moments in the score where elementally you would have this sort of echo of a diegetic sound that you would hear. So then it's about playing with this concept of reality versus fantasy or reality versus illusion, where you don't know if that was a synthesizer or, or a voice that made that sound, or if that was actually something that happened in the diegetic sound in nature. And I, I really like playing with that. I tend to do that a lot in the scores that I make for film, because I find that very interesting, and I I really enjoy the idea of sort of letting go and letting letting the the, the film take up all the room around you mm-hmm. while it's there and while it has your attention, and to be able to find different ways to excite the ear, you, whether it's using psychoacoustics or just playing with the sound in the room in in a surround space or in an Atmos, you know things like that. So yeah, I did not touch any of the diegetic sound because it was so. Insanely rich. But it was also interesting to find where to let go of the score altogether and let the diegetic sound blossom and then find spaces in which the two were intermingled and then find also spaces of silence within the film. Like all of these things, it's about crafting these arrangements with the visual and the RL like in the sonic, at all times throughout the process of making the Yeah, movie.
1: I imagine you're you're rubbing up against <laughs> a lot of the diegetic sound and the um, sound design or whatever. You know, it's sometimes hard to tell what is what and that's kind of what makes right. it interesting. I also don't want to overlook because it's not—it's <laughs> fresh. The telemarketers—that release was yeah. just a few few months ago—and yeah. have it overshadowed. But that was that was an HBO production. Yeah. that you were involved with, and the Safety brothers were executive producers for it, right?
0: Yeah, the Safety brothers and Danny McBride and David Gordon Green. And David
1: Gordon Green, um, right?
0: Um, yeah. How
1: How'd you get involved with that one? They're also different, you know, Com- coming from Candyman and they're very different. telemarketers, and then Grasshoppers uh, Republic.
0: Yeah. Once again, they approached me, I got an email from the editor, Chris Passick, who is someone that I know, he's an excellent editor, he's been working in film and television for many years, and he tends to use a lot of my work as temp music as he's cutting things together. And he found and the directors and producers found that they were enjoying the, the work of mine that was that was temporary in uh the cuts that that and the edits that chris was making and so they reached out and asked me if i would potentially be interested in doing score and when they explained to me what the, what it was it was like oh this sounds really interesting chris had just finished cutting the first rough cut of the first episode when they had reached out to me so they sent that to me to watch and i was like oh this is a really compelling space to be in and i became excited about. And it was also my first foray into television. I had not done any television thus far, which is a very different animal than than film. But it was a very enjoyable one. It was sort of getting my footing was a little different due to the fact that it operates in a different way. And there was, I think, a lot of it had to do with the fact that cuts would sort of move back and forth. And I think due to the legal aspects of certain material within the cuts, like things had to be moved around just so everyone was was covered legally, even, even down to how things were phrased, how they were said. It, there was a lot of back and forth, but it was a really lovely space to work in between Chris and Claire Reed, who is the lead producer, and Adam Balalo and uh, Sam whitman Stern, the two directors. It was a very easy space to exist in because it was very familial and everyone was very supportive in every aspect of the making of that show. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that it is a show about camaraderie as, as much as it is a PSA about criminal you know scams like telemarketing scams it's it's about friendship it's about camaraderie it's about two people like really getting into it and doing something together so i think that energy carried over every bit of working on that score was super fun and i got to play around with things that i normally don't play around with in in those landscapes it's things that would honestly lead lean more into song forms Mm. than i have generally with other scores that i've done which are a little more peculiar. And I think the weirdness of the things that I make is very present and very apparent in the telemarketers score, but it's just a different sonic landscape and it's a slightly different approach. But Why
1: do you think, I think what made you go that direction?
0: Um, I think it just had to do with what I felt suited the story and how it arced and how things moved, how things were propelled through space. Documentaries are different than narrative films and you know a docuseries like this I don't know there's a, there's a lot of push and pull in how it moved but I mean it moved very fluidly and I think that's really due to Chris's editing job which was really stellar the way he cut that show together was bananas yeah I don't know I think it was just appropriate for the space and it was nice to see that people were excited about the work that I was making internally you know as a part of the the team that was putting it all together like it made sense to carry the through line of the story and everything was really bonded together and, and made a lot of sense and it was just i don't know it's just that's what made the most sense in that space
1: i guess i should have said this on the onset that the the telemarketers is a docuseries but it's based on two co-workers or two friends
0: yeah two co-workers at the time at the
1: time were just feeling like they were they couldn't believe all the stuff the employees were getting away with it at work, whether it was doing drugs or exactly. you know, being goofy or whatever. And they were just filming all the stuff that went on during the day. And then they slowly start to learn that uh, these police charities, and I think fire as well, charities that they were collecting money for and duping people in were actually going to the pockets of the, the owners.
0: <laughs> the owners of the company. Yeah.
1: CDG or what? Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah civic development group.
1: And, and it went. it's a long period of time, right? Yeah,
0: it's, it's over the course of 20 plus years, honestly. And yeah, so it was basically Sam Littman-Stearn, Stern, who is one of the directors. He's the person that initially started bringing a video camera to work and recording things. And then he became, he befriended Pat J. Pesp- Patrick J. Pespis, who is one of his co-workers, and was really excited about sort of making a character study of Pat. So making a film about Pat. And then it shifted from that point as they became closer as friends, where Pat started talking more about how criminal things were that they were doing, and and Sam started to see it as well, yeah. you know, and especially when it shifted from being a shill for the Fraternal Order of the Police to raising funds for cancer, and it was the same sort of situation, but it's like going from raising money for the police to raising money for cancer patients that who knows if they're actually getting that money. That's I think where they, it really started to twist and they really sort of became these gonzo journalists and, and this sort of verite series explores <laughs> that whole landscape, which is pretty, it's a wild ride yeah. and it was a total pleasure to work on like every, every, month. they go
1: further than they probably have ever imagined, like speaking to, to senators, yeah, you know, yeah. politicians and trying to Absolutely. get further along.
0: I was really excited when this series came out. It seemed like it tracked with a lot of people. People really responded positively to it. And I think it's due to the fact that it's, it's a story that's told in a very natural way. It's a subject matter that if you yourself had not worked as a telemarketer, you know someone else that had worked in some sort of a call center. Hmm. So there's that relationship to it, coupled with this sort of vampiric relationship that every single person has with telemarketing because we get scam calls and robocalls every single day. So I think having those relationships and also showing the camaraderie of the these two people going through the motions to sort of sound the alarm and become whistleblowers about this subject matter, I think people, it really resonated with people because it's, it's very earnest, it's very real. Is there
1: anything else you're working on on the film side of things or otherwise that uh, you're able to talk about um, or well, on the horizon? I know you're going to Venice, right?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm going to Venice for the Biennale. I have a commission for the Venice Biennale Musica the, on the weekend, collaborating with uh, my cl- close colleague, Nicola Becker, who's an incredible sound artist, Foley artist, composer, and uh, sound designer for film but also I've just finished working on a documentary with Yancey Ford called Power, which is about the history of policing. It's a real gut punch. That's
1: a documentary?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a feature-length film.
1: How important is it for you to get, um, I guess, soundtrack releases for these? Do you push for them, or they just kind of naturally happen? Or
0: I push for them because I feel that the work that I make, it being that it's intentional in the space of cinema or the, the space of this, this visual medium, I make things that I think are able to stand on their own as an independent work. And so I also like having that juxtaposition of having it with the film and then having it without the film because I think, you know, and then I and then I am very keen on making sure that the, the packaging is the way that it needs to be. I tend to ultimately micromanage the way these things are made because I have a very, that that intention carries through to the object of the release or even, even the digital, I always want to have a hand in the, the cover art, the layout, right. you know, make sure everything is as it should be, but it is, it is always really important.
1: Yeah. yeah. I imagine it's so labor intensive and also your ultimate work may get chopped up a little bit, or it may be quiet right. under the dialogue exactly. or whatever it gets. I would imagine you want it to, be out there and kind of stand on its own and be heard yes, with all the exactly. all the time and energy and effort you've put into to to creating it mm-hmm. to get it out there in the world. I thank you so much for your time and willingness to come on and
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Take yep, care. Take care. Bye-bye.